and I felt saved, Susan. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this the way Esther Helga taught us. Three meals a day, nothing in between, weigh and measure. And I lost 106 pounds. Food Addiction is a podcast which explores the disease of food addiction and presents the solution. We interview professionals and counselors who specialize in the disease of food addiction, and we interview individuals who have successfully recovered from food addiction and discuss how they did it. Esther Helga Goodmans-Dotier was motivated to change careers after she recovered from food addiction by opening a food addiction treatment center and the INFACT school, the world's first and only sugar and food addiction counseling training, which offers a recognized certification. Check out the website for more information on obtaining this certification, as well as proven recovery programs at infactschool.com. Listen to these episodes as we discuss the problem and the solution around food addiction. Greetings and welcome to the Food Addiction Podcast. I am Susan Branscombe. I am a recovered food addict. As was mentioned in the intro you just heard, the Food Addiction Podcast uh, is one in which we explore the disease of food addiction and we present the solution. Uh, We interview professionals and counselors who specialize in treating the disease of food addiction, and we interview individuals who have successfully recovered from food addiction and discuss how they did it. Today, we'll be talking to a person who has successfully recovered from food addiction, and we'll be talking about it. So Anna is here. Welcome, Anna. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I am happy you're here too. I've got a great story uh, for our listeners. For the sake of anonymity, we only mention the first names of our recovered food addicts. We are going to dive into some questions, talk about your experience with food and weight and this disease and how you recovered. So Let's start by how you define yourself. Do you call yourself a food addict, compulsive overeater? How do you how do you define I, yourself? I am a food addict in recovery one day at a time. And I have three years of abstinence. And it's not perfect, but it's <laughs> yeah. good. Yes. Well, we aren't perfect. If we want to be perfect, we're going to be disappointed. And it is one day at a time, isn't it? Yes. And you'd mentioned to me, I think you're okay with answering this question. How old are you? I am 56. 56. Okay. So I'd like to talk about about your journey. Um, You know, how long you did diets uh, and how uh, you thought it was the way to control your weight and your food for really many years because uh, you are 56 and uh, you've been abstinent from food, compulsive overeating, the, the disease uh, for three years. So talk about, talk about uh, your journey. As a child, I was not an overeater, but the tendencies soon came into place. I remember my first eating compulsively at the age of seven. And my disease has progressively gotten worse with each year. And It really surfaced when I was 16, when I went to America and was in school in Florida for nine months. I think I gained 40 pounds. And when my mother saw me when I came home for Christmas, she cried. (laughs) Because you'd gained weight? Yes, because I had 
gained so much weight. Mm. And after being grown up, it's a continuous struggle. And I'm very strong-willed. And I have had many successes dieting. But each time I dieted and took off 20 pounds, then I put on 30. And when I lost 30, I put on 40. And so on and so forth until I am 53. Then I was at the end of my rope, over 280 pounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the quality of my life was rubbish. I had a a proud face and, and a happy one. I put on a, they took care of my family and I did my job, but there was not much quality in my life aside from that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of, um, a lot of illusion. When you were seven, you knew that uh, you used uh, food in ways others didn't. And then when you went to the U.S. at 16 years old. Um, did you speak uh, English? Yes. I learned English when I was five mm-hmm. from a French lady. Okay. So when you came to Florida at 16 years old, um, you spent nine months here. Uh, that was kind of an early use of food in order to cope with uh, that transition, right? And that's what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah. And there were there were many um, chocolate bars and a lot of food and just yeah. feeling absolutely horrible and trying to compensate for my feelings by mm-hmm. overeating. Mm-hmm. And that's where the disease really escalated. Yeah. And you're like me in that as a food addict, I was very good at dieting. Um, I would get a diet. I would lose 50 pounds. Everybody says, you look great. Keep it up. And I would keep it up sometimes for a year or two. But then I always went back to the food when I felt like I needed it to cope with something that was going on in my life. And my weight went up to 203 pounds and I'm only 5'3". So I understand it. And, And they fooled me into thinking that Diets fooled me into thinking that I had control of this when I'm just not a normal eater. I'm, I'm really addictive when it comes to food. That is the same way I am. Yeah. So uh, take me through, uh, you got up to 286 pounds, which I, uh, which I have in my notes. Um, you uh, continue telling your journey uh, about uh, the surgery you were just about to undergo and I think just the, uh, if you could talk about the, um, just the challenge of, of, of failing on diets, we think failing, it's not really failure. It's just that we, we are different. Uh, but just the, the constant kind of like I tried, I, I'm gained weight again. I can't do this. You, you know, it just, it's almost desperation. Really. It was desperation for me. Like, what do I do? Every day I got up And I told myself, this will be a good day. This will be a better day. And then I had breakfast. And as soon as I had breakfast, I was restless. Mm, What am I having for lunch? What am I having for lunch? And I uh, work in a utilities company where they have heavy lunches because the men do a lot of difficult work out in the field. 
and I would eat a very hearty lunch and dessert. And often there would be extras set out after lunch, and I would just graze continuously. On my way home from work, I would stop by in a bakery, buy maybe five different types of sweet bread, and play it out as if I were buying them for my whole family. Mm -hmm. I I would act as if. Right. And once I got in the car, I would eat two of them. And it isn't a long distance from my workplace to the bakery or home. But I would eat two on the way home. And before I went inside at home, then I would put the wrappers in the rubbish outside. And I would dust the crumbs off my chest and off the gear shift thing to make sure nobody saw. And then I'd come in at home and I'd say, hi, I'm home. (laughs) nobody was the wiser right we we eat in secret right we want to keep the secret and there's some power in the secret too you know of i've kept a secret from you but as we know we wear this disease we wear it and so we don't get away with it unless of course you are bulimic and perhaps you're you know you go through the vomiting routine but um if you don't, like you and I didn't, we binged, uh, we ate a whole lot more than our bodies needed. And then we would hide the evidence. You know, I would hide wrappers too. I would stop at convenience stores, get gas, go in and buy, buy things. And then by the time I got to where I was going, I wanted to make sure my husband didn't see the wrappers. And so I would throw them in a trash can so he wouldn't see them. I mean, that's the, that's the insanity of this disease, you know? Yeah. And I would come home, and if my son was home, then his best friend would also be home. And I'd say, oh, you lucky boys, I came, stopped by in the bakery, and we have something for all of us. But often they were not at home, and I would finish yeah. all three. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the day was spent in a fog, a brain fog, mm-hmm. having overloaded the system. And when you're in a fog, you don't feel so horrible. Right. I mean, that's how we used food, right? That's how I used food. We talked about that, that if we're experiencing um, any kind of emotion in our jobs, for example, or at home in relationships, we use food to feel better, to escape, to numb out, right? And it works. And it works. Um, Were you aware of the cravings that you had that, uh, you know, the sugar that you'd had the day before or earlier? Were you aware of the craving, the physical craving of those? I was aware of them because they were so strong, but I didn't realize. I felt them, but I didn't realize with my mind and with my consciousness. Mm -hmm. But they drove me to the bakery, to the store, to the gas station. And you're based in Iceland. Uh, I'm in the U.S. And in the U.S., we have a lot of drive-thrus. And many food addicts use drive-thrus because of how we don't have to get out of the car and show our faces very much except to the person who's who's buying the food. And I, I did drive-thrus, you know, for years to remain, uh, keep the secret of uh, the addiction. We don't have so. that here in Iceland, drive-thrus. But I'm a very good actor, so I always had a scenario like going to the bakery and acting as if I was buying for a five-person family. Yes. yes. And making many plays. Right. And acting them out. 
And the brain fog, I think, is very much physical. Uh, the sugar uh, does does a number on our uh, on our brains. Uh, it hijacks our brains, and we know that there is science around that. And then just uh, just the numbness of uh, that full stomach of full of food, uh, which as we use food to escape emotions, that's what happens. It's very, very much physical. So uh, yeah, relate to a lot of what you're talking about here. Um, so talk about uh, the continued journey and uh, you were set to have, uh, maybe talk about your bottom uh, yeah. and then the gastric bypass surgery you were set to have. I hit rock bottom at the age of 52 and I found the doctor who had, I had been in treatment for over being overweight. And I said, I can't do any more. I need this gastric bypass surgery. And he said, ah, Anna, but you've done it so many times. You can do it one more time. And I said, I can't. I've just, I've come to the end. And the mm -hmm. quality of my life is so lousy. And I'm 52. And I can't imagine spending the next 50 years doing the same. Yeah. So please write up um, a prescription that I can have this operation. And after some persuasion, he said, okay. And usually the waiting time is one and a half years. Mm. But this is prior to COVID and the waiting time was only half a year. So I got a phone call saying, Anna, it's now your turn to have the gastric bypass surgery. Please come and bring your spouse with you and we'll have a meeting Um how do you say, preparing for the operation. And you can ask questions and it's like a lecture. And it was a two-hour lecture with the doctor and nutritionist who taught us. And there was a group full of, a room full of people also having the gastric bypass, taking notes and asking questions. And one of the things the doctor said that was um, important to me was you don't eat sugar after after a gastric bypass. And another thing he said is you don't use alcohol for the first year. And after that, you use alcohol very carefully. And I said, why? Because he said there is a likelihood that you will move your addiction from food over to alcohol. So you have to use alcohol very carefully. And then they taught us you need to eat five or six very tiny meals through the day to keep your blood sugar regular. And you need to eat good protein and you need to eat supplements. And maybe you need to have iron injections and everything is very complicated. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I was very lucky to meet a childhood friend when I came out of this meeting who was going for food addiction treatment at our only treatment center here in Iceland called MFM. Yes, Esther's uh, treatment center, Esther yes. Helga Goodman Strutier. And I was so, I was just so happy and excited. And I said, oh, I'm mm. going to follow you there. I hope there's room for one more because the course was just starting the food addiction treatment. The next week, and I had an interview with Esther Helka, mm -hmm. and she diagnosed me with food addiction on stage between three and four. Okay, four is the late latest stage food latest. addiction. 
Yes. Right. And I got the last available space in the treatment group. Mm. And when the uh, doctors and nurses called six months later to say, Anna, it's now your turn to have the operation because COVID came at that time. Everything was delayed. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I don't need it. No, thank you. I don't need it. Oh, that's wonderful. And the nutritionist <laughs> said, how yeah. come? And I told her what I had done because I shed the weight, weighing and measuring my meals Mm-hmm. Three times a day, nothing in between. Yes. And working on my feelings and old trauma. We're going to get into that, uh, Anna, as we talk about the disease. Uh, so, just to summarize here, um, you're set to go for gastric bypass. And basically, they're telling you here's how you eat after you have it, which is the way we should be eating anyway right? No sugar, right. no alcohol, uh, yeah. regulating how much food we, but you know, you don't have to have surgery to do that, but we're not able to do it, you know, as food addicts at uh, critical level food addicts, right? So I'd like to hear about your childhood. We know that this disease is a physical one, that we are not normal eaters when it comes to food, uh, yet our environment as children can contribute to the severity of the disease. Um, so it's how we're wired in, in food addiction. Often this can be, come from our parents. My dad was a food addict and he was an alcoholic uh, and he struggled with addiction. So let's talk about your childhood, your parents, your siblings. What, uh, what was your childhood like? I am the youngest of three. And when I was four years old, my parents took a job with the United Nations and we traveled the world. We mm. moved every two years from countries, from continents. I was based in Africa, in Asia, in Europe. And this continuing moving, of course, it was an adventure, but it was also traumatic mm-hmm. and, sure. and difficult always saying goodbye, always saying hello, and there was very little stability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, both my parents are alcoholics. They might be overeaters as well, but alcoholism is the main addiction, Mm -hmm. as are my two brothers. Okay. And when I was five, I was sexually abused, which is something that I repressed and I didn't remember until I was 50, no, 49. I was just almost 50 when the memories of the abuse came. And that was very difficult, but I. I came through it and I worked through it. And the 12 mm-hmm. step program has helped me immensely because today I can meet my aggressor anywhere and I can treat him with being polite and I can show him respect. 
Mm-hmm. And we have made, he and I, we have made our amends. Mm-hmm. And I th- yeah. I'm very thankful for the 12-step program for teaching us this, mm-hmm. for giving us the tools, because this does not govern my life today. Yeah, so you're a young Uh, your child and your parents are moving every two years with their jobs at the United Nations. So a real lack of stability. That's very hard on, on children. Plus they were alcoholics, right? And uh, your, your siblings were alcoholics and uh, food is the, uh, is how is the addiction that you went to. So it's not only a physical difference in how we're wired, but you saw other addicts and how they coped. uh, And then, you used you used food, and uh, that is a long time to have repressed the memory of sexual abuse. Um, yes, it were is. you in? Yeah, were you in therapy uh, to, to determine this, or how did it come up? The the memories came in my dreams. Okay. And when I woke up from a dream, it was like a nightmare, and I would wake up my husband, and I said, "Oh, I was dreaming. I was dreaming," and I would tell him the dream. And then I ended up saying, thank God it was only a dream. But this really happened. This was true. And the memories came, and I have three recollections, clear recollections of being abused. Hmm. And I went to uh, a specialist. Okay. And many specialists and worked through this. And it took me over a year. Wow. Yeah. It's, you know, these, these memories, I've seen some work done here with dissociation where it's a way for children to protect themselves from dealing with what's going on. And uh, our minds protect us from, from uh, experiencing that. But then it's like a little hairball inside us. We have to, we have to address it and get it out if we are to be healthy. Right. I would not have believed it, Susan, that this was possible. I'm a science teacher. Mm. And how can you forget something like that happened? But I think Mm -hmm. the body keeps us alive by forgetting. When when we can't cope with this Mm -hmm. information, we just forget it. And then when it's um, safe to remember, then we remember. Right. Then, then it will bring the memory to the forefront, and it did through your dreams. And you thought, "Hey, there's something here." Your husband probably said, "Yeah, you, there's something here. You need to check it out." So you were your your mind was ready to accept it. And yes. It sounds like you have used the program to, you know, uh, confront your uh, aggressor. Um, let's talk about recovery and um, how did you recover? What did you realize? I mean, when you started working with uh, you went to the treatment center, MFM in Iceland, Esther Helga's uh, treatment center. Uh, and then what we find out uh, is that we are using food throughout our lives and we can't control it. Uh, and then we find out, well, there are some things that I can I can do other, other ways uh, in a 12-step program, whether it's fears, resentments, emotions, dealing with emotions. Talk about the recovery that you you found. It was absolutely amazing. It was on day two, and I had a very foggy brain after all my overeating. 
But I remember this very clearly. She showed us a slide that showed the addiction cycle, the vicious cycle of why you can't stop once you bring, once you start using your substance of choice, in my case, sugar and flour, you cannot stop. Six wild horses can't keep me from it. And when she showed it to us, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm not such a lousy person. I'm not so weak. This is a disease. There is a reason why I behave like I do. Right. And and I felt saved, Susan. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to do this the way Esther Helga taught us, three meals a day, nothing in between, weigh and measure. And I said, I'll do this. Um, until I reach goal weight and keep it off for three years. Then maybe I'll Mm -hmm. do something different. And I lost 106 pounds. Congratulations. In just over a year. Yeah. But I still have not reached my maintenance weight. So I believe my higher power has a sense of humor and is keeping me (laughs) just (laughs) above (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My goal weight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But today, three years later, it doesn't matter. I am very yeah. happily following this food plan given to yeah. us. And it makes the world of difference because freedom is what it gives me. Yeah. Freedom from thinking about what we're going to eat, thinking about what's the next right diet and why can't I do this? And yeah. And what I hear you saying is just like me, it's like, I just feel like a failure. Uh, The truth is, though, once we start eating our trigger foods, once we start eating sugar, our bodies have a different response to it, and we can't stop once we start, right? Yeah. And another thing we learned in treatment was not just the food plan, but also the steps and doing steps four through nine, doing all the lists what causes yes. resentment in me, uh, what fears I have. All the, that work has given me a quality of life which is beyond my wildest dreams. Yes, yes, it is beyond, beyond my wildest dreams too. I, I understand what you're saying, you know, that we're holding on to all that, right? And, yes, uh, what we find is once we put the food down and really start eating the way our bodies are meant to eat um, with whole foods and and I weigh and measure, I eat five times a day. And um, what we find is there are causes and conditions that caused us to eat in our lives. And that's how we coped. Rather than feeling the emotions, rather than dealing directly with people in relationships, setting boundaries, we we used food, and so that's what you're talking about, right? Yes. And some days still are difficult. I mean, the mm-hmm. shit hits the fan in my life just like everybody else's. Sure. But the coping me- mechanism is another one. Yes. Yeah. And I'm still working on being, I am codependent, being brought up yes. with alcoholism. So I am a very good people pleaser. Yes. And sometimes I say yes when I mean no. Yeah. And I am learning to say no, and I am learning to set boundaries. And I'm getting better at it. 
I am too, any day now. <laughs> uh, but I'm, uh, you know, it's very common, especially with women in, uh, with our disease, uh, that uh, we have trouble, you know, saying no. We have trouble setting boundaries. We don't want anyone to not like us, right? And uh, so it sets us up, uh, and some of this is societal, uh, that, that women are expected to go along. They're expected to do what, what they're told, you know, in the very traditional sense. I wonder, because in my country, in Iceland, um, in my upbringing, girls are not important. Only boys are important. Girls don't need as much as boys. And boys, I mean, it's just, it's absolute madness. Yeah. And I thought, oh, maybe this is the culture in Iceland. Maybe it's different somewhere else. No. <laughs> and I wonder, Susan, is it the same in Africa? Is it the same in Asia? Mm. Is it the same, or is this something that is Western? From what I've seen in other cultures, uh, there are varying degrees of gender bias and gender appreciation. It seems as though in some cultures, women are uh, some sometimes regarded as the the stronger sex, uh, the more powerful one, but that's more rare. But in the U.S., uh, we've made a lot of progress in gender gender bias, but it it's still very difficult, and um, you know it it just isn't equal, and uh, that's a whole nother uh, subject and podcast. Yes. But you and I both have, and and this is a good segue to this. You were like me; you worked in a male dominated field, very challenging industry. Often I would come home frustrated, angry, and you talk about the people pleasing. People expect you to take no for an answer, and, and and it was business for me. And I would come home and use food to shift my mood, to allow me to escape and numb out, uh, just from just to kind of relax myself. And you had a challenging career too, and and I think used food in the same way. Talk about that. <sighs> it's like Susan. When you can't stand up for yourself, when you continuously sabotage yourself and, how do you say, lower yourself, and, not, and you don't take care of yourself. Right. And it's, it ruins everyone's life to do that. And that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. How do you say... A martyr. I was a martyr. Oh, you martyr. Yeah. Ask yes. ask Anna to do it. She'll do it, and she yeah. won't uh, object. Yeah. And uh, we do it at work, and we do it at home. But maybe you could give an example of of doing this at at uh, at in your job. I have many hats in my job, and I like them all, and it gives my job versatility. But sometimes I say yes too many times. And I am torn between. And the, my first reaction is always, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. And today I'm trying to say, yes, I can do it, but I don't have all the time in the world because I have other things I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. It, and the pause is important. When I say pause, I mean, when somebody asks you to do it, it's okay to say, let me think about that. Or... 
uh, I'll get back to you before the end of the day or get back. Let me, let me consider that and then get back to uh, that. has helped me set boundaries and not say yes right away. I am such an eager people pleaser Mm -hmm. that yes has usually escaped my mouth before I even think. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to believe that your background as a child, I had alcoholic parent, uh, you had alcoholic parents and you were moving around all the time. You had the, the abuse going on. It's kind of like, you know, people expected you to go along and, and you did right. That was a pattern that was set up early. So it's breaking that pattern so that we can be, you know, look out for ourselves. You know, yes. really, this is self-care. Yeah. Yeah. And I need to work on my self-care every day. Mm-hmm. Brush my teeth, yes. wash myself, wear nice clothes, think about yes. how I look. It's yeah. very important part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. Yep. Taking care I'm, of myself. Meditate. Yep. Meditate every day. I try to get some kind of exercise in and then the food, you know, I, you know, I commit my food to a, to someone every day. And I, if I have to change it, I have to get permission to do that. It's very strict and this is what I have to do, but that's how I kept off 70 pounds for six years. Right. Um, I was, um, you know, like I said, I was slowly killing myself with food. I weighed 203 pounds and in 2016 I decided I needed to do something. Um, so I, uh, entered a 12 step program. Um, I didn't get abstinent from food addiction until I was about 57 years old. Uh, but my life is, there are a lot of wonderful things that happen, uh, after you become abstinent and healthy and, uh, talk about that. Talk about the freedom from the food thoughts. Talk about it. It's amazing. I get up in the morning I make my breakfast, which is usually the same every day. And I have two puppies that I really enjoy. And they also (laughs) have weighed and measured meals, just like me. (laughs) Glad the dogs are in it too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that is wonderful. All the time. I have all the time in the world between breakfast and lunch to do everything else. And I don't have to think about food at all. Because I know that I had enough, which will sustain me until lunch. By lunchtime, I will be like a pack of wolves. I'm so hungry. And then I weigh and measure my lunch. And I have my lunch. And I try to make the meal last 20 minutes. Because it takes 20 minutes for the hormone, ghrelin and leptin, to work. Yes. To tell me that I'm full. I've had enough. Right. Right. If I eat faster then I will still feel hungry. Yeah. So I try and make it last 20 minutes. Yeah. And I'm full until dinner time, and I don't have to think about food, and I've got all these wonderful things to do. Yeah. I come home, I meet the puppies, I let them out, we go for a nice long walk, I stop by at a friend's, and I have a quality of life far beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah. You said you have grandchildren and you like yes. to go hiking with them. Uh, I've been hiking since I've gotten ab- abstinent, but tell me about that, what, you, what you're able to do today that you weren't before. I have four children and eight grandchildren, 
And the things that I enjoy most now is going for long hikes, going for mm. four-day hikes. Yep. We took our eldest grandchild. He was 13 last summer. And we walked the highlands of Iceland mm. for four days with our backpacks. Yeah. And feeling that I can do it, I can do it with him and my husband and I, this is really enjoyable. Yeah. And this yeah. is a quality of life. Yeah. I could not have, have done, done that. No. Yeah, 286 or me 203. And I hiked in the Grand Canyon for five days. I hiked out west in uh, Moab, Utah. You know, I love hiking, but yes. I could not have done it before. I have stamina and I don't get out of breath. You know, it's just uh, my body's healthy, finally through recovery, right? My husband and I walked the Camino de Santiago. Oh, Do you know yes. that one? Yes, I know it. I've not done it. I have yeah. friends that have. Yes, that's wonderful. And the way we walked it, and that was before abstinence, we walked 550 kilometers. Mm. How and many miles I, is that? I don't know. I don't. I'll convert it. Yeah. <laughs> Then my husband had difficulties with plantar fasciitis. With oh, his, yes. Yeah, the sole plantar of Plantar fasciitis, foot. right. Yes. Yeah. So we had to stop there. And we returned three years later after COVID. And then I was abstinent and much lighter. And we finished the 330 kilometers and I could have run it. Wow. It was so amazing. 330 kilometers. That is amazing. When did you do the Camino? It was la we finished last year. Okay. The last 330. Okay, COVID. so three, 330 kilometers, is it possible that that's 205 miles? Yes. Okay, wow. <laughs> that is a lot of walking. Uh, it's incredible. That's really wonderful. Um, so It's similar, Susan, to meditating. Walking? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And when you're walking meditation. day and mm -hmm. day, day after day after day, always the same. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's very, and it's very spiritual. I've heard that walk is very spiritual too. It is. I think it saved my marriage twice. Mm. Nice. Nice. Well, you and I share this. We love this uh, life. Uh, we are living in recovery. Um, I have neutrality from food and sugar and other trigger foods. Uh, I eat what my body needs today and I, I weigh what I'm supposed to weigh. So it's a wonderful life and I don't have to worry about diets to help me control my food or weight anymore. And it sounds like you've done the same thing. So as we. And I love Susan opening the closet the cupboard where yes. all my clothes are and I have all the same size. Yes. I fit into everything. Yep. It's amazing. It is year yeah. after year. Yes. Yeah. Year after year. Yeah. I have the same uh, wardrobe, uh, winter and spring and summer. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I just, it's wonderful to go in and just wear the same thing and know that no it will fit, you know? Yeah. As we wrap up here, Anna, it's been great. Uh, you've got a great story. Um, what message would you give to the still-suffering addict compulsive overeater? What would you say to him or her? I would love to show him or her the addiction slide that Esther mm. showed us. Yeah. And show them that it's not their fault. 
They are not at fault. This is a disease and it can be managed one day at a time by following a food plan. Right. And working. You need to do the the psychological work also. Right. The the recovery. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And find out why we were eating, you know, and uncover that and then make changes in our lives. And clean things up. I mean, that's what the recovery is all about. Clean up, clean up our lives, uh, address relationships that we need to, and continue to do that each day afterward. So thanks for joining me today on uh, our food addiction podcast. I'm sure Esther is going to love it. And um, uh, it's been great. It's been great. I think our listeners will really get a lot out of your share. Thank you, Susan. I hope so. This is the Food Addiction Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned more about this disease. We hope you will rate and write a review on this podcast and share it with others. If you or someone you know is suffering from the disease of food addiction, there is a solution. The various food addiction recovery programs are available and listed on the website, theinfactschool.com. Or if you would like to know more about how to get certified in treating food addiction, the school is accepting applications now for its next training beginning in September 2023. Go to theinfactschool.com. That's I-N-F-A-C-T school.com to learn more.